0: I'm Dr. Terry Fisher, a physician and voice technology futurist. Voice first technology is rapidly becoming the operating system of our lives, and it will completely revolutionize the way we experience healthcare. Let's talk voice. Voice first health. The future of health is voice. Well, hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Voice First Health. So pleased to have you along for this episode. This is a very, very special episode. And I have an incredible, truly incredible guest for you today. In fact, he's been on the show before, back in episode 19. And this is none other than the one, the only, Brian Romley. Now, if you don't know Brian Romley, he is the man that actually developed the phrase voice first, which is now commonly used to describe this particular sector of technology. He has often been referred to as the oracle of voice. He's often been referred to as the modern-day Thomas Edison. And he comes on today to discuss and recap the recent presentation that he gave at the Alexa conference uh, in Chattanooga. The presentation that he gave was one of the most inspiring, thought-provoking presentations that I have seen uh, for certain in the recent past and perhaps ever. Uh, It was truly remarkable, and he went into concepts about not only the voice technology itself— but even more importantly, where he sees this technology taking humanity in the future. He discusses here on this podcast his concepts of the last interface, the intelligence amplifier, your wisdom keeper, and so much more. We get into issues about where data will be stored, and I'll give you a hint. It's not where data is being stored currently. So this is a remarkable interview. I am so pleased to be able to to share uh, this interview with you. The other thing I want to point out right at the beginning here is when you get to the end of this uh, interview, you may have your own thoughts. In fact, you probably will have certain thoughts about what Brian is saying, and I would love to hear how you feel about Brian's thoughts and concepts. And so at the end of this episode, at the end of this interview, I am going to share with you a number of questions that I would love for you to answer on Twitter, and let's get a discussion going about this. So I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Also, Brian has agreed to come back on the podcast a little bit later and answer your questions, so I'll talk a little bit about that at the end as well. Now, you'll also notice that this uh, episode is a little bit longer than my other previous episodes, and the truth is, when I speak with Brian, I can't help but listen. And we covered so much ground. It was such a great discussion. I hope that you will find it as interesting as I did. And so the bottom line is, it's a longer episode, but I think that you will get a ton out of it. So without any further ado, I want to welcome Brian Romley onto the podcast again. So welcome back, Brian Romley, to the Alexa in Canada podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. It's always a real treat to be able to speak with you. So thanks again for
1: coming on. Terry, thank you very much. I really appreciate being here.
0: So much has happened since the recent uh, Alexa conference. Uh, some of the listeners will be aware that you gave one of the uh, most, um am trying to find the right word to describe this, I can't even think, most intriguing, most thought-provoking, most um, uh, one of the most influential talks that I heard that, that uh, conference for sure uh, about your thoughts on where voice technology is going. And you introduced some of your incredible ideas. And I think a great place to start today would be to have you sort of recap what you presented and talk us through a little bit about, you know, what are your ideas about where we're going with voice technology?
1: Well, Terry, thank you. Um, It really was a unique experience, and um, I felt honored to start introducing some of the thoughts I've had for literally decades, really. I started to really think about it since the 1970s. I started assembling Uh, Many of these concepts and the terminologies are definitely out of the 1980s, um, but I can't think of better ones. So to dive in, uh, the real name of that uh, talk was The Last Interface. Um, Um, It was uh, sort of cloaked before the talk uh, under the term, what if? And that became a great turning point in the talk, I feel. Um, So what is The Last Interface? the last interface is literally the last interface you're going to have with technology and hmm. a lot of folks on first bluff uh blush if you will bluff in the hmm. sense it is um hmm. is is how we're going to interface with technology and it goes back historically the only reason we're typing to computers the only reason is because the computer could not understand our volition, and our intents. The only reason. When the technology finally caught up, we were straddled with legacy technology of the QWERTY keyboard, which I wrote an article about on Quora. It got picked up by Forbes and a few other publications. That was invented only for one reason primarily. Not so the keys don't stick on a mechanical typewriter, it was invented so that the salesmen of the Remington typewriter could type out the word "typewriter" faster. If you look at the uh, above the home keys, where Q W E R T Y is, all of the letters of "typewriter" are in one line, and that was the reason. Oh, yes. So, w- huh. why is that important? So, why is important? And uh, to be frank, I was shocked that this was not out in the public domain. A lot of historians and a lot of professors have contacted me after I wrote that article, and they were dumbfounded on how I picked up the trail. And um, I picked up the trail with factual evidence. It wasn't a guess, and it wasn't um, sort of a tale that people spun together. Oh, you know, that's so the most used key pairs uh, don't lock together. Well, that's not the case, because ER and RE... Together are the most used key pairs in the English language, and they are used all the time, and they're adjacent, and they would lock together. So premise that this is designed so keys don't lock is wrong. And people didn't touch type uh, when the Remington typewriter was invented. They hunt and pecked. Touch typing was 10 years uh, in the future when the Mm -hmm. typewriter that Remington created with the QWERTY keyboard was invented. So we're using a legacy input device to talk to the computer. What's the mm-hmm. primary input and output device of a human being? It's not their voice. thumbs, it's their voice. Mm-hmm. And where does that voice come from? A silent voice in their head. The byproduct of what's called the Warnicky Broca um, temporary memory phonological loop. And it mm-hmm. comes from the mm-hmm. right hemisphere and the coppice colossum and the left hemisphere assembles that as a buffer memory of speech and then we have to try to transcribe it today with two thumbs, one character at a time. And I know that hmm. that obviously is an end point where we're going to stop. So, right. no, are we going to be talking everything at a computer? No, the computer is already intelligent enough with current technology to take your context and to present to you the information that you readily are searching for. Over time, give me eight months with you, and I can present information to you before you even consider that you want to look at it. This is your context, not somebody at a big website who's designed to edit your context. It's your context on what you seek out, on what you find, and it's highly personal to you. That's the premise of The Last Interface. And some people say, well, Brian, The Last Interface is going to be some implant in the brain. If you want to do that, sure. If you want probes in your brain, indeed, go for it. But guess what it's going to connect to? It's going to connect to the phonological loop, and that Uh will be in the left hemisphere, and that would be a silent voice that if you happen to be reading this as a transcript, you hear in your brain right now.
0: So So if I understand you correctly, then what you're saying is, Regardless of whether we're using our voice verbally, actually uttering words, or whether we are thinking the words, perhaps with some sort of neural implant, ultimately, we are using our voice, and that is what you're describing as the last interface. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yes, and that's why I came up with the term voice first. Now some folks Mm -hmm. are starting to understand, because all the thoughts any human being ever has when it's... Concentrated into an idea that's being put out in the world is a transcription of your inner voice. There are no other ways to do that. And as a doctor, I'm sure you know of Broca aphasia and right. Wernicke's aphesia, and we know what happens when those areas are damaged. You are locked out from the ability to put out your ideas into the world. If you have Broca aphasia, well, it's tied to your ability to speak. Guess what? You can't type either. You know, you have the mechanical ability, but you can't get those thoughts out. I'm talking about extreme cases of aphasia. There are some forms that you can do some typing. So that being said, if you try to decode through neural implants, the right hemisphere, which is the best way I can graphically present it as a sea of ideas that we use Mm -hmm. nets to collect and assemble, As a concept that we speak about or type about or somehow broadcast out, you can't read that side of the brain because it is only assembled at the moment in real time in your buffer memory. And the moment it's put in your buffer memory, it is speech. It's silent speech. They, They are indistinguishable. And it's hard for most people to understand. We don't have a an isolated buffer memory that doesn't have speech attached to it. And this gets down to the minutia of, of very cutting-edge brain um, science. But I, I invite anybody to dive into this. I've been doing this for 30-odd years. I do not have any initials after my last name. So go and look at it. Consult people who have those right initials after their last name and then decide whether or not that's a correct assertion. It's not a a well-understood assertion in the tech world. The tech world assumes that we're going to wave our hands around in the air or I don't know what, you know, keep pounding our thumbs on glass. Nothing wrong with it, but it's a transitionary technology. The technology that I'm talking about isn't voice only. It's voice primarily directing contextually high AI technology. And we're seeing the beginnings of that with uh, voice-first devices like uh, Echo, and Siri, and uh, Google, and to so some are later, smaller extent, uh, other devices that are right. going to enter into the market.
0: Now, you mentioned, so you, you just referenced there a little bit of AI. Now, I know you have a different take on AI, um, and I know this is actually another one of the key concepts that you introduced at the conference. I'll let you, let you go ahead and, and describe that, but what, what is this other key concept that where you've sort of taken AI and you've sort of given that your own twist?
1: Yeah, I literally twisted it around, uh, Terry. Uh, very, very good point. Uh, I call it not AI necessarily as much as intelligence amplification. And it's, it seems like a subtle twist of words, but it's very profound when you think about it. Um, I presented the idea by searching through history how we developed the, the, the concept of why we, why we speak. Why did we develop language? And uh, some people got lost in my journey. I won't go too deep into it. But language was developed because our brain got too large. It got so large that literally it was the reason, number one reason, that most females died. Uh, It was giving birth. We're the only species on the planet where birth could perhaps be a death sentence. And it wasn't because of a lack of medical establishments. There's still a high rate of... uh, death during birth. Uh, obviously, uh, C-section does assist in some ways. What are we talking about? The brain capacity grew so much larger, other than becoming cone-head-shaped, which there is history of that in the past, and we can talk about that someday. Uh, the brain uh, cranial size, the volume, could not get larger. So we offloaded a vast majority of our built-in ROM, our automatic programming, were born naked, with absolutely no skills to defend ourselves. All other species on this planet, after a couple of days or a couple of weeks, they are fully capable of defending themselves to a greater extent without the input of the parents. Humans, at the at the best possible circumstance, eight years. Um, in in, in the most agreeable circumstance, let's say 18 years. You need the offloaded archival memory system of mom. And ultimately, dad, to make your way through the world. Why is that important? Because that forced us to develop our ability to speak. And our ability to speak was developed with a sacrifice. We lost short-term memory. We lost so much short-term memory that in Japan, there's a, 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 a simian Research Center where they've proven that um, uh, chimpanzees can discern... After a flash on the screen randomly of 72 numbers, every single one of those numbers. So it's sort of like the Simon game, but on steroids. A human wow. at best can get to maybe 18. Most of the chimpanzees that they've tested ultimately get to all 71 in a flash. So we've wow. been able to demonstrate that humans gave up short term memory for speech because it turns out that in the precisely the same area where they're uh, sort of encoding all of those positions for a little bit of food. That turns out to be Warnicky and um, Broca's area in the human brain. And so there are our cousins. So we gave up short-term memory for our ability to speak. Why? Because our moms needed to train us how to feed ourselves, how to take care of ourselves, and maybe later on how to defend ourselves from our mom and our dad. So I really mm-hmm. believe that uh, females invented speech. Uh, A lot of people feel that that is a radical idea, and I have a lot of scientific evidence to support that. Females also invented the concept of time. Time is very important because time gave humans the element of mortality. Mortality is important for humans because only humans, the best of our knowledge, can contemplate their own death. Other species, simian species, can grieve for the death, and even other animals can grieve for the death of, of others in their group but only humans can contemplate their own death. So that drives mm. us to build. But how do we build? It all starts with a story. So my, my, my thesis, my grand thesis under The Last Interface, and there's a lot, I'm giving some of the book away, but nowhere near what I hope to um, give in the book, The Last Interface, which is what I'm really talking about, is this idea that we always have been and always will be storytellers. And I don't, really distinguish whether that story is allegorical or mythological from the past or whether it's this theory of relativity or how to cure cancer or uh, pneumonia. They're all stories. They're assembled the same way. They're transmitted the same way and they're archived the same way. So humans had to offload memory into archival systems and those archival systems became known as writing. And typing is an example of an extension of an archival system, meaning we're storing the things that we can't pass on generationally on an offloaded system. Computers took over that, and now we archive systems in places that we call websites or Google or PDFs, whatever you want to call it. But it's still an archival system. It still does not transmit volition and intent necessarily of that individual. And I'm leading right. you up to something that I'll get to in a bit. So the short-term aspect is something I call the intelligence amplifier. And again, AI, artificial intelligence, I don't really fully believe in that concept because I don't think we can fully define what intelligence, intelligence is in humans and where it comes from. And therefore, I don't think we can artificially create it in any way, shape, or form that is human-like, machine-like intelligence. I don't know what that is. If you can think faster, is that intelligence? Because that's all computers are doing today, is they're thinking faster than humans. They're, They're finding patterns faster than humans. But is that, in fact, intelligence? I would say philosophy already answered that question, and I think that question is no. Computer science might take 100 years to answer that question, but I think it's already been answered. So I think the best we do is create intelligence amplification. And I think that's what humans have been trying to do. And that's why I told you that long story. We've been trying to amplify our intelligence by archiving our world and our stories, whether they be allegorical, mythological, or quote-unquote factual as we see it today. All of our facts today will, 1,000, 10,000 years from now, look allegorical to people because they will not be facts any longer, unfortunately. They will be Mm. seen as primitives. And so what the intelligence amplifier does is it takes in everything around us. So let me take you on a journey and how this works. Yes. In this world with technology that exists today, the moment you're born to the moment you die is a device, which is not on your head. It's not a camera sitting in the middle of your forehead. It's not glasses. It's, I'm not going to explain in detail what it is, but it's going to be something else that has essentially a camera and a microphone. Now, I'm going to do a side channel here and say assume for a second, and we'll visit this, that it has the highest security you would ever imagine, and it never goes on the Internet. In fact, it has no Internet connection. This is very
0: intriguing. We'll come back to this. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, And, and, and so it's recording everything you've ever seen. Everything you've ever witnessed, everything you've ever read, every comment you've made, every comment you have heard, everything, it's archived. And during my my talk at the Alexa conference in January, I pointed out that the human being discards, it's called exformation, not information, over 99% of everything that comes through our senses. And we can just talk about our visual and auto, audio senses. We have a limit. It's called a Shannon limit. And it's developed by a gentleman I got to meet at Bell Laboratories called Claude Shannon. What Shannon essentially said that any communication channel has a limit of bandwidth where signal and noise can exist. And the higher the signal, the better that communication channel is, but it reaches a limit. The human Shannon limit The human limit of information is 11 bits per second on average with bursts of up to 40 bits per second. Now, a bit per second is literally what it sounds like in computer lingo. And a lot of folks in current neurological research try to dispute this, even though this concept was really from the 1940s. And an incredible writer I got to meet in the 90s put out a book called The User Illusion. And I challenge anybody to read this book. I read it at least once a year and I have since the late 1990s. It will explain a lot of what I'm talking about. We discard most of the information that's presented to our senses. Now, is that good or bad? Let me go on to how that happens. Mm -hmm. The way we discard information and create exformation, discarded information, which may in fact still be in our memory, it may still be a neuron, but it may not be associated with that memory any longer. A gentleman by the name of Kim Peek, who was the uh, character in Rain Man, the Dustin Hoffman movie, is an mm-hmm. example of an individual with a form of um, aphasia, if you will, brain swelling. Uh, actually, it's, it's, it's more of an encephalitis that caused his problem of uh, the copus colossum being essentially damaged. He had the ability to remember almost anything. And I call this the Kim Peak proof of humanity. He's not the only one. There's thousands I've researched. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: what Kim Peek could do, and I challenge anybody to go see Rain Man again, through different eyes, he was able to see things like a, 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 a box of matches dropping to the floor and being able to tell you exactly how many matches hit the floor without ever counting the matches, without ever knowing that somebody took 20 out of them. He knew it. He saw it. He had the ability to decode it. So the human brain obviously has this. That's a sidetrack. It may talk about where I'm going in the future. But right now, if you had a device that was on your body and saw everything that you forgot and forgot to remember, the good and the bad, it understands your paradigms. Your paradigms are the editor that takes away the information And let's look at it like a movie editor's table, like an old school movie editor's table. So let's call this the archive of your life. And feverishly in your brain, and I challenge you to find where it is. And this is a great little rabbit hole for people who are really getting into what I'm saying. Find where that editor is that is taking all of your information, editing a vast majority of it, and presenting to you your reality. And again, this sounds all new agey and, well, you know, Brian's going down his road. It's very important in the context of technology. And it, I'll hmm. make, try to make it clear very soon here. So the paradigm is your construct that edits information. And I, I use term, you can only see what you think is possible. And what I really mean by that is if your paradigm is not designed to see what you're not expecting, you edit it out of your field of view. You literally need it to be so loud that you're, like, startled by it. And then your editor goes, oh, oh, hmm, hmm. Here's what happened. So if you've ever driven someplace, and not under any alcohol or anything like that, hopefully, and you arrived at home and you said to yourself, holy cow, I just did an hour drive, and I don't even remember how I got here. A lot of people say, well, that was muscle memory. You were deep in thought. No, you were actually in flow. And something else, some people call it your subconscious, and I think that's very one-dimensional. Something else got you there. It was your paradigm. And if you remember the old Disney movies, the background was on a loop, old Mickey Mouse. It was the same mountains looping around and around. Do you know something? It's exactly what your brain does. Your brain constructs reality. You don't have a live feed of reality. Yeah. Everything you see around you is not a live feed. It's a construct. It's giving you only the information that it thinks is important at that you moment.
0: Know, you know, Brian, it, it, what you just said. I don't, I can't even remember why I was thinking this, but just in the last day or two, I I was having a discussion with someone, and I remember we were we were uh, talking about driving. Just just the example that you gave, and you know, I can think about a drive that I did recently, and I couldn't tell you. Which traffic lights were red? Which traffic nothing. lights were green? When did I have to stop? When did I have to pass a car? Like nothing, right? I just know that I got from point A to point B. And I think that's you, sort of what you're describing.
1: Terry, did you see the purple elephant dancing on a stool? No. Right, no. No. See, and, and I do this at some of my talks when I was much younger. I would literally put something so bizarre on the stage. And it's, it's right there in front of everybody. And, and I said, did anybody notice this? And I walk over to it and I touch it and everybody, not not every single person, but a vast majority are like, oh my gosh, I didn't even see that. Because it was so juxtaposed to the context, you didn't see it. Now, I'm getting to my point about the intelligence amplifier. Imagine everything you've ever seen, everything you've read, all of these things are presented to you, not as a video or audio, Nobody's going to read, listen, and watch these videos. It's going to be operated on as the prima materia, the basis of your AI to derive context and to understand not only your paradigm, how are you making you as you, because you are the sum total, not fully, but a great deal of you, the sum total of all the experiences, the good and bad. That defines us as human beings. Now we have this information from the moment you're born to the moment you leave. And so it starts amplifying your intelligence because it remembers if you and I read a book a week for most of our life, you can only read about 4,000 books. You can only remember about one chapter of all those books if you're lucky. And that chapter may not be the important one, Hmm. but the devices that I'm building, the devices that I have in my garage lab, can know every word of every book I've read. And it can understand what impact it had on me at the moment I read it. And it can decide what is important to me and what's not based upon that. And then it can amplify the things that I think are important in my life. Now, am I helpless? Do I have no input on my paradigm that's operating inside the intelligence amplifier here's where it gets fun you can design your paradigm unlike your own paradigm in your brain which is very hard to change i challenge anybody to study how hard it is to change your paradigm and a lot of people will say it's your your biases all of these different things that you're biased upon and and there's a lot of psychological research that have investigated this. It's it's difficult. There, there's ways of doing it. I've studied it and I hopefully have been successful in some ways, but our biases are based upon our prior experiences. Why? Because that's how you and I got here. We got here because humanity created paradigms that said, oh, I'm not going to do that again because that was the dog that bit me. That was the thing that made, that was the food I ate that made me throw up. I was sick as a dog. You know, all these different things Right. Those are biases, but they're designed for survivability. But they also are our doing and our undoing at the same time. And you and I are at a crucial point in history where our biases are now becoming magnified in this two-thumb world of social media. Right. We now read our biases as something even more. Maybe something ugly. Maybe something that gets us labeled or we label ourselves. I don't know. I don't want to go too far down that. But imagine you can go to your intelligence amplifier and say, I want, I want to control my life so that I can start seeing the world through this lens. Help me. And the system will help you. And so now we're talking about mental health. Uh, maybe Tony Robbins in your ear? Maybe, I don't know. It's up to you. It's up to your archetype. It's up to your Myers-Briggs type. And I adjust the software so it knows your Myers-Briggs type. So some people want a coach. And I'm not saying that's what this is, but some people want it, a little whisper in your ear. This is not a far-field speaker, by the way. It's something that whispers in your ear. In fact, it could talk to you across an open room, but only you would hear it. And we'll talk about that. I call it sine wave speech in a sec. But this idea that we can be fortified and amplified the best of us, the best of who we are through the entirety of our life, is that something that technology has been doing since the beginning of time? My conclusion, Terry, is that's all we've been doing. All we've been doing as human beings. When you really examine history from the beginning of language, to the beginning of writing, to art, to all of the sciences, the printing press, the computer is amplifying human intelligence. But what I can tell you is not amplification, is searching and sorting the end result of a 16 million Google search. 16 million results and ser- searching and sorting is not intelligence. That's purely data. I'm talking about wisdom. So if one could imagine a pyramid, and at the very bottom of that pyramid is data, the next level up is information, the next level up of that is knowledge, uh, and then the next level up is insight, and the next level up is wisdom. We are awash in data and information, so much so that we are the only point in history where everybody has, just about everybody, has equal access to all information. Has it made us wiser? No. And that's precisely why this is the next major leap for humanity. And I call it the last interface because collectively the last interface is a couple of products. I've only talked about two publicly. Mm-hmm. There's actually 20 or so. And I'm gonna be a little inspecific about it, but and, and these are not even the major ones. The one is the intelligence amplifier. It stays with you when you're alive. It's some people might say it's an archival system. Perhaps it's a memory enhancement system. Perhaps uh, it's a motivational system. Perhaps, I mean, I'm not going to go down to 4,000 different things that it's going to be. Those mm-hmm. are good guesses, but it's something I've been working on since the 1970s. So I'm very familiar with what it's going to do. I hope to inspire everybody listening to me to understand what the future is really like. I even put out a song called <laughs> the last interface, yes. the path on iTunes. On Google Play, it's called uh, The Path, The Last Interface, and I hope to put out a few songs as a creative way to promote these concepts, to try to get through the noise and to Mm -hmm. deliver a signal on what this really represents. Um, This is not utopian. It's it's just anti-dystopian. This is a message that is anti-dystopian. I think it's more in line with what humans have... Had been doing, utopian would say it's going to save humanity, and it's going. To, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's going to be good and bad of this. But so what happens? What happens with all of this stuff, all of this prima materia, uh, this this information that we produce? Because it's there is no exclamation at this point. See, humans' existence up until this point has been literally throwing away everything, and then when mm-hmm. we die, perhaps. I'm not going to get mystical. Everything's thrown away. We're dead. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. all gone. Not now. Not now. Because in this world of the last interface, the next stage is called your wisdom keeper.
0: Yeah, and this is fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: So the wisdom keeper, your wisdom keeper, why is that important? It is the sum total of all of your experiences. It's the essence of your experiences. And why is that important? Because I have not met a human being in my entire life that does not have some wisdom to contribute to this world. Whether they see it themselves or not is irrelevant. You're here for a reason. I don't know what that reason is. But I know that you survived a tremendous amount of, oh my gosh, every possible thing. And you survived the gene pool race. There were a lot of little... um, uh, let's call uh spinny tail little guys and and little round gals that literally were <laughs> yeah. discarded and you won. You won that race. And a lot of people say, oh big deal, Brian. No. If you want to look at it from the this the level of chemistry and biology, you are a hero just by hmm. surviving that. Now the next question is what's the sum total of your experiences? You die, it goes away, boom, you're gone. And I think in our last show I, I presented this concept and then i hopefully i terry i try to do the best i can and i just don't know if i'm doing justice to what i'm seeing in the future and so i mm-hmm. in the beginning of my talk at the alexa conference i produced a video uh mm-hmm. where i took the richard gear um uh, movie called intersection and uh, the Jodie foster movie uh called contact and i merged them together and you so gracefully and gratefully to me Captured that moment because it wouldn't have been captured otherwise, from my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, maybe you can link to it. What I, I will, to grap- what I tried to graph. What I try to graphically present is, what if you or I or anybody listening were were taken out too early, and we leave behind the grieving, and you have this intelligence amplifier who now is biologically disconnected from you remember I got to say this this is not her the movie this is not something in a robot that you're going to fall in love with other than what you fall in love with I hope that you see in the mirror yourself I hope you love yourself you have to mm-hmm. uh, I don't care how weird that sounds but it's studied enough mm-hmm. if you don't do that mm-hmm. you're not going to get very far in your life it is, a, it is your alter ego you're now gone, but the essence, the essence of your experience remains. That's your wisdom keeper. It, it knows you're no longer here. And I, and I put quotes, it knows. What it means is that it now knows biologically you don't exist anymore because you, know you are no longer in contact with this device. So whatever your protocol was when you leave is now going to be in play. Who gets access to it? Well, you decide that. It's going to know who's talking to it, and you're going to talk to it. It's not something, can you text message to it? Sure. Perhaps if you're into doing your thumbs, go text message to it and talk to you know dad or mom, whatever. The bottom line is it will talk, mm-hmm. and that's going to be the fundamental primary interface, and that's your wisdom keeper. What is it? And in, in the, in the uh, clip I used in Contact, Uh, I merged two pieces. One was Jodie Foster right after dad passed away. She's radioing to her dad in in this desperate hope to try to talk to her dad, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: and then at the very end point of the movie where Jodie meets the quote unquote aliens, the aliens manifest as who her dad. How do they know the dad? They reconstructed dad from her own memory. Now, I'm not talking about that. Perhaps that will be something in the future. I am not. I don't want to talk about anything that is not possible today. Be very clear. I'm not saying uh-huh. that that won't be possible. It's not possible. I'm just saying everything I'm talking about today, unless I say otherwise, we are doing now. We can do now. The only thing we lack is the will to do it, the vision. People don't necessarily have the vision and the money. It's going to take a little bit of money. So, Jody Foster... Um, talks to the image of her dad. It's an emotional experience because she recognizes her dad. Didn't need to see him visually, but let's say there's a visual manifestation. She knew him by the dialogue, by the interaction. And, you know, it's touching in a sense that it manifests something that I, man, when I saw that movie the first time, it knocked me over like a ton of bricks because it's something I tried to articulate way before that movie. You know, and uh, when I saw it, I said, that's it. That's, that's captured the concept. It's certainly in an alien type of movie. And so, I, you know, I struggled with using that clip because I don't want to just make it, uh, you know, this is how aliens are going to communicate with us. And it makes a lot of sense. Carl Sagan and, and the, uh, the screenwriters who I've gotten to meet who wrote that movie with Carl uh, and Andrew, uh, Duran, um, they understood something that I think very few people understand today that we are in fact going to communicate with something in the future and it's going to use our own communication channels to talk to us. And the most powerful way to do that is to decode how we see our paradigms in the world and use that reflected back. And uh, it was was great writing. So anyway, Hmm. that's the concept. So another thought experiment, and I think I presented this in the show before and I'll present it again with higher context now because now I'm talking about it more publicly, before I really didn't release it. So it's 2019, and now I'm talking about it. Uh, Your wisdom keeper is now your testament. It is who you were. It's the reason why you got that tattoo. It's the reason why you have that scar. It's the reason why you get sensitive when somebody says this. It's the reason why you eat that. It's the reason why you wear red or yellow, or green. I can go on. And so you're sitting there contemplating this, and you say, these are the things I want to leave when I go, and these are the things I don't want anybody to know until a thousand years after I'm gone. And so it's not going to know every time you went number one and number two and you know had intimate relationships, unless you feel that that's important to share with your kids and everybody minutes after you're gone. You know There yeah. are going to be Phases of release And some of it will be Profoundly important to medicine Profoundly important to understanding humanity Profoundly important to understanding you And most importantly Profoundly important to understand the wisdom That you collected In my view Nature has never wasted anything There's nothing that goes to waste Every carbon molecule That has ever been present on this planet Other than the few that have leaked off And that we've taken off Is still here Recycling mm-hmm. through our body. This is ancient wisdom. I'm talking about. This is why Native Americans uh, talk about how um, you know our ancestors are in the rocks. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? They're absolutely 100 percent right. So I, I tie mythological things constantly with technology because I think it's important to understand that this is not new. I stand mm-hmm. on these shoulders of intelligence. It's not my concepts only. Don't get me wrong. I'm just I'm a, I'm a transmitter of a lot of these ideas. So your daughter is getting married and you've been gone now for seven years and your daughter approaches you and says, Dad, I'm getting married today or I'm pregnant, I'm having my first child or I just, had a fu- I just had this crazy argument with my husband. I need help. And dad says, listen, when I was your age or when I was younger or this is how I dealt with mom or these are the mistakes I made, and guess what?
0: Hmm.
1: I challenge any human being that's listening to me that does not have a story like that. And I challenge any human being not to, 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 to try to think anything outside of a story. That's all we share. That's called wisdom. That's at least, at the very, at the very least, it's insights. It's a sum yeah. total of that person's experience shared to you at the right moment in time Hopefully guiding you to make a better decision. That in fact, Terry, is all humans have been trying to do. And I I, I I put that out. I put that out as why are there pyramids? Why are there megalithic structures? What was our ancestors trying to tell us? Hold it. It was designed for a king to show how powerful he was. Oh, yeah. Tell me why the king didn't write his name inside that tomb and every square inch, just like Uh, 3,000 years later, they did. You know, and I'm not, again, I don't, it's not alien. I'm not getting into that story. I'm just saying, take a step back and understand that humanity has been trying to transmit messages forward that were megalithic, that were trying to tell something to us, unfortunately, because it can't speak to us, and we don't know that language. And maybe that language is highly... um, analogous to something that we don't understand anymore it's mythological um, uh, it, 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 we can't really fully understand it today and maybe some hmm. individuals do and maybe we don't listen to them but my point is humanity has been doing that since the beginning of time now you can participate because that, if if uh, go ahead oh so I was going to say no
0: i mean this is this is this is incredible like this is this is uh, I'm almost at a loss for words here. I mean, what the picture you painted is absolutely incredible, and this, this is this is people that were not at the conference now having a sense of these these big concepts: the last interface, the intelligence amplifier, the wisdom keeper, your wisdom keeper. These are these are big big ideas, big big concepts, and I and I I agree with you. I see, I can I can at least I see a little tiny little sliver of your vision in terms of what you see coming. But one of the big questions that keeps coming up. Uh, in my mind, I know in minds of other people with the current um, companies that are out there that are working on these voice assistants and and and, and the, the current state of the voice technology is they 're talking about where all of this data is going to be stored, and what you 're talking about is an immense amount of data where there 's going to be no more of this um, as you prefer to it 's extra. Extra mation is that what you called? It? Yeah, X formation. X formation. Sorry, X formation. So with this immense amount of data and what you term X formation, and you know, is this going to be stored in the cloud? Is this going to be stored somewhere else? How is it going to be secure? And one of the concepts, and I don't know if you've spoken a lot about this previously in great detail, but one of the really fascinating things that I think it, that you've 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 introduced is the idea that this in, this data is going to be stored. On your person with what you've termed or what is known as holographic crystal memory so what is that all about
1: thank you Terry Um, boy let me have see how how I want to approach this um if we examine the last five years and the breaches of personal emails the breaches of people's private lives their personal pictures and seeing that leaked out to the greater public it's some sort of horrific roadside show of an accident that we can't look away from, but we know is just wrong. We just know it's wrong what it's doing. Whether or not we want to judge that person or not, it's absolutely wrong. We, we, we kind of feel like now these famous people are in the same cesspool as we are. And I say there's going to be rebellion to that cesspool. This idea that we are all going to have our privacy ripped apart, that we're all going to be somehow made quote-unquote human, I don't believe that's made human. We're we're made to be private because that creates the dignity of that individual. Now, if people are doing things that are not worthy of who they are, that's something else. It's not for me or you or anybody to judge other than that person at hopefully not the end of their life. If they're doing something wrong and they get caught, and we all know about it, so be it. My, my grandma gave me some great wisdom when I was younger, and she said, I know she you know, paraphrase what she had heard before. She goes, just don't do anything in your life that you wouldn't be proud to be on the front page of the local newspaper. And hmm. it's hard to yeah. live that way because we, we all do stupid things. Thank, thank gosh that I didn't have my early teen life <laughs> and that guy made some stupid decisions. Yeah. We all did. Sure. So the cloud has proven itself to be ineffectual to store even a few emails now, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating storing everything in the cloud. No, I'm not. That's what people are getting wrong. I'm not advocating that at all. I'm advocating that we're going to do this, whether I say we are or not, it's going to happen. I hope in some way I have, and I hope the people listening to me have some input on guiding this. Where it should not be is in the cloud, certainly unencrypted, period, end of story. Second to that the current encryption technology we're using is woefully inadequate. And this is where a lot of people get a little nervous. I think when we have an intelligence amplifier with your wisdom keeper world, the penalty for hacking this non-internet connected device, no matter who you are getting into it without permission, woeful permission of that individual is equivalent to the murder one charge wherever you happen to reside. Mm. I, I, I've thought about this, Terry, for a very long time, and I can't imagine anything more desperate that you can do to an individual than to go into their brain and peruse their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions, their experiences. I can't think of anything more destructive or more tyrannical in the hands of the wrong individuals who are leading... Wow, when- governments
0: when i think about that i mean talk about like violating the person's most inner you know beliefs and thoughts and feelings when you're you're literally just extracting a person's thoughts that have been recorded through the wisdom keeper the last interface intelligent amplifier all of this you've been speaking about i i certainly can see what you're saying
1: and it's hard it's hard because I, i i i know the destination i know it clearly i don't want to sound arrogant this is going to happen Everything I just talked about is going to happen. I I started talking about it at the beginning of 2019 in a more public sense. I've talked about this privately for decades. This is not new. It's not new at all. It's the time to start talking about it because we have to have a dialogue and entertain these concepts. We need to, in some ways, rein back this idea that we're all going to be recorded and we're all going to be stripped naked and we're all going to be exposed and we're all going to be tortured. I've met people who've been tortured by pictures and information that utterly turned their lives upside down. And I needed to meet these people and I needed to understand what it felt like. I don't want to feel it. And uh, I, I don't want to see anybody ever go through this. And you So know, where does
0: this come into this this other type of memory then that you're describing? Sure. Where is all of these? Thought- where are these thoughts going to be kept and in, a, in such a way that it's secure.
1: Exactly. And that's a great question because I digress here. So a lot of technologists listening to me are saying, Brian, that is a profoundly large amount of information in HD video and audio. There's, there's not even a, a storage system that you can carry on your body today that will hold it all. And I would say at this moment in time, the uh, few hundred, well, you know, I'll, I'll just pick a number. Uh, you know, a, it's according to how there, how this information, uh, if you will, exformation, but it's now information, is stored and, and what resolution and what, um, what compression you use. But let's just say 100 exabytes or a few petabytes. It's a, it's a large number, right? And today uh, I would say it would cost about $30,000 to store all that information. But that's 89 years of your life. Nobody has had this on their body for 89 years. Therefore, they've not yet generated that much data. So with current technology, that is not currently holographic crystal memory, and I'll get into what that is. Current technology, you can store this easily, and you can store maybe 15, 20 years quite easily with um, a rather obtuse-looking system. But Moore's Law and other things are going to make these things go smaller. So. Over the arc of the, say, 89 on 95, or hopefully you live to be 150, 200 years, whoever you are listening to me, we will have something called holographic crystal memory. And it sounds also mystical. It's not. Crystalline structures are incredibly, incredibly stable for holding information over long periods of time. We are using what is called uh, nano doping within these crystals to create the substrate that allows us to store this information. That's the best I want to go into the details. You can go and look it up. Most of the research stopped when the cloud computing became very popular because the concept was, it doesn't make any sense to have such a small compressed crystalline storage system. And a lot of the research dollars went away. Uh, But some Research is still going on. So what can we do with this? First off, it is for the ages. The crystal, if not banged upon with a very large hammer, will sustain magnetic storms, EMP pulses, buried in the ground, thrown around, played tennis with, whatever, forever, essentially. So Hmm. the sum total of your experiences is not going to go away because somebody erased a hard drive i ask you what's going to happen to all the pictures you've stored in the cloud 500 years from now 500 years from now where it's going to be well, who who's it's gone it's gone terry and and this whole idea that everything's going to exist in the cloud and somehow you know people are just going to hold on to it because they're nice at some day you're going to face a fork in the road you're going to have enormous amounts of information stored on the internet and somebody's going to go knock on your door and say In the next nine months, we're going to erase everything unless you pay us this much money. It's not going to sound like that. It's going to be due to unforeseen circumstances. The cost structure of our original business plan has been such that we Uh need to charge you $10,000 now. Uh, And and you're going to be, you're going to say, hold it, all my pictures. I don't want to go too far down that road, but I really hope people are kind of getting my vibe here. This trust Mm -hmm. that it's going to be stored for you forever, for your for generations, you and I savor the pictures from our great great grandparents. Hopefully, we have them, or at least our grandparents. Yeah. And we look at them. There's maybe one or two, and they're faded, and they're broken, and they're look. And we go, let's get it restored. And what's the next generation's going to savor from us? We don't print them out anymore. The, the formats aren't even yeah. going to exist. I, I know people put every picture they had uh, on on CD-ROMs, and <laughs> DVDs. Right. And now they're right. kind of scratching their head saying, oh my gosh, what am I going to do with it now? There won't right. even be a DVD or CD player. See, the, the formats won't exist anyway. So what's the sum total going to be stored at? It's going to be stored in holographic crystal memory. Why do I say that? Because it will sustain over the ages. And even if we long, long lost the technology, maybe somehow, like the Voyager record, the Voyager record has this incredible, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. We won't be around millions of years when hopefully some some intelligent life, whether it's us rediscovering it or some other form of life out there, looks at it and says, wow, I'm going to make an analog record player and I'm going to play back the sounds of humans saying hello in you know, 150 different languages and I'm going to hear Chuck hmm. Berry and uh, various people uh, play music. But there's instructions on it. So maybe... I don't know. Maybe we destroy ourselves. Maybe something happens. But in the ground is thousands, millions of these, and people are saying, my gosh, this this means something. And here's an archive. Here's something that looks like it was important to these folks. They don't even speak our language. Maybe we can try to dig and see what this really means, and they rediscover it. That's a little dystopian. I hope that doesn't happen, but that's one of the reasons. It will survive nuclear fires, uh, even even volcanic uh, to a certain level, at some point they're going to melt, of course. But let's mm. hope some survive. Anyway, um, it is a survival archival system that will have the the throughput and the bandwidth and the storage system uh, petabyte capabilities ultimately to store every single waking and sleeping moment if you want to at some point obviously it's not going to be recording anything if you're sleeping it's not going to record every snore maybe you might maybe the information will be valuable at some point but let's just say it edits out the storage because there's absolutely nothing happening and that's part of let's call it a compression algorithm that in the in and of itself is prob- problematic because that is a form of an editor. It's exformation again. But let's just say that that's one way we cheat the system. But let's just say we don't need to cheat the system, that it's so inexpensive. I mean, we used to think that a gigabyte of memory, it, w- it was million dollars at one time, and it went down to pennies. You know, right. So we know Moore's Law is going to operate on this. So now it's stored, and it's encrypted, and it's encrypted in a number of ways that when I finally disclose how we encrypt it, it is going to be so unique and so unbelievable for some folks. They're going to see that there's layers and layers of encryption that allow only access to <laughs> the people that you want to have access to. And so now that exists, I'm going to go one step further. and something I call the neurosphere. And Pierre dan Pierre um, Dihard Uh I'm really bad on French, maybe you can help me there, <laughs> In, invented this concept of the Neurosphere, and hopefully we'll put a, a, a link to it, and it's fascinated me since the beginning of time. His premise is, and, and you know, he was a religious man. His premise was, and, and, and all of his works were not published until after he passed away for a lot of reasons, because They sound very scientific. He comes down to this concept that we have a, um, uh, let's call it a biosphere and a geosphere. The geosphere is our planet. The biosphere is that very thin film around us that we survive in. It's extremely thin, and it's where all life exists. And then there's this concept of the neurosphere, So the geosphere is the rock and structure. The biosphere is the life. The neurosphere is the sum total of all intelligence and experiences. And he postulated in the early uh, uh, 1900s that this has to go somewhere, that the sum total of everything nature creates is sustained in some form. So he produced sort of a mystical concept that the intelligence goes somewhere. He doesn't know where. The Neurosphere I'm talking about is mechanical in the sense that we are going to archive it in your Wisdom Keeper. And here's the power, Terry. We will interconnect hundreds and millions of Wisdom Keepers and with permission and ethics and moral codes. They will interact with each other long after you're gone, and that will form the next Internet. The next internet will be an experiential internet. It's not about facts. Do you really care about the fact? Or do you care about the impact of the fact? The fact is data. The data is worthless without insight and wisdom. We have created a world where we think data is more important than wisdom. We're going to flip that with the intelligence amplifier and wisdom keeper. We're going to start saying, no, the wisdom is more important. Now, can machines huh. assist us in the wisdom? Of course. Is there wisdom everywhere? Yeah. When you start looking at it, wisdom is everywhere. It's just not honored. It's not honored today. The wisdom keepers of the ancient times were honored. The wisdom keepers of today are laughed at. They're literally laughed at. They're, it's like... Oh, that stuff doesn't serve me. You're not going to get 500 million in your startup. Look at me; I'm more wealthier than you. And yet, wow. yet we've lived empty lives in this world. And again, I don't want to proselytize down this whole judge. It sounds judgmental. I'm just saying, take a look at life today. We have access to all of the data, pretty much all the data that anybody thinks is valuable. Have we gotten more wise? Have we really gotten more wise? Can anybody listening to me look around and say, we are more wise in this world in 2019? I say no. And I say the technology has brought us to this point where we have data, and now we suspect, hopefully, suspect sources of that data. Hopefully we suspect biases to that data. And hopefully we bring a generation up that can have better discerning skills on what they need to operate on. And I believe one of the ways we can do that is creating a world where there are millions of wisdom keepers. So let's just say a thousand years from now, great, 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 great grandpa. Mm. We can access his wisdom. We can go back. You and I can have this conversation with maybe a, 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 a relative that it connects the two of us. And we could say, great, great, great grandpa, what did you experience? Why did you make the decisions you did? And people say, oh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? You are here at this moment in time because somebody made a decision, and that decision led to you being here. Why is that important? It is important because it could inform your decisions in the future. Why are there megalithic structures in my view? Because sometimes the past is trying to send a message that hopefully gangs and tyrants and dictators who have a little square inch of land that they're beating somebody over the head with can't deconstruct those megalithic structures because they can't amass the strength and energy to build them nor destroy them. And they're trying to send a message into the future. They're trying to say... I, I, I challenge anybody to understand Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, a, a monolithic group of structures of only which 5% has been unearthed that is clearly over 9,000 years old, minimally. It is prehistory. It's pre-Sumerian. And this area was in use for thousands of years It took hundreds, if not thousands of years to build, perhaps, in use for thousands of years, and then meticulously buried almost bucket by bucket from hundreds of miles away to build mounds to cover these structures. Hmm. Now, I ask you, and I hope people really understand what I'm trying to say here. I ask you, why did that culture meticulously bury Gobekli Tepe? What were they trying to say to you and me with no filter, nobody in the middle, no archaeologist, no talking head on the news, me saying this story, and this is a fact, what was that culture trying to say to you and I in this epoch? Because it was discovered in our lifetime. In our lifetime, we discovered that there was a group of people, our Relatives, our family, were all related to them in some way. They meticulously buried something that they felt was profoundly important for either us not to discover, you can take that track, or to unearth when we're ready to try to understand. And I would say, at the very minimum, the message is very clearly not only we were here the first cave paintings were saying some of the same things. But we survived. Huh. And the thing that we know that's about Gobekli Tepe, the thing we know, and this, I'll, I'll let you speak in a sec here. The thing we know about Gobekli Tepe that's so important, there is no sign of war. There is no sign of human sacrifice. There's no, There's no spearheads. There's nothing to deface that area. They chose... For hundreds of years, bucket by bucket, hundreds of miles away, they, they, they didn't dig one hole to bury it. They went hundreds of miles, and we know this from the dirt. We know it wasn't a, a, a great flood that buried it. We know that by the strata and the build. Again, this is not speculation. It's pure science. All this is uh, carbon dated. We, we know the various areas they dug holes. We can even find some of those holes they dug. So they sent us a message. Now, why am I doing this ancient and this technology at the same time? Because I'm trying to activate, anybody listening to me, the two parts of their brain. That our technology is a tool. It's not an ends in and of itself. And we've diluted ourselves into thinking that it's an ends in and of itself. That we are going to be hunched over for the end of humanity, staring at screens, looking at Uh, trivial things, upvoting, downvoting, getting anger, getting mad, uh, getting happy, wasting, uh, I think, not my judgment, your own judgment, at some point in time, you look back, wasting our life force energy. We're only here for a brief period of time. Was it serving us or not serving us? Did the fruits of our technology make us stronger or make us weaker? And I think this is the moment in time we need to present this question to ourselves. This is a personal journey of anybody listening to me at this time. You yeah. have wisdom. Yeah. How do you want to share it? Where do you think it's going to go? And don't look at 100 years. Look at 10,000 years. And how right. important would it be? All right. That's my that- thesis.
0: What a, what a great way to uh, to uh, to cap it off here. Ultimately, this comes down to what does your wisdom mean to you? What do you want that message to be? Who are you going to share it with in the future, and how is that going to play out? And I think that those are profound questions. That Terry, you I got to ask at. you. you yeah.
1: You're one of my heroes. You're you're you're, you're a polymath. You're in, you're in so <laughs> many different levels doing this. <laughs> That's technology, very kind. medicine. I, I, I'm very very serious about this. What do you feel? I mean you've been around a lot of humans you've you've dealt with them on a personal level i'm sure you've had to deliver messages and information to them that may have meaning that they're facing the last days of their life right
0: yeah what yeah. does
1: this mean to you i I'm really curious if you can give me some of this insight
0: yeah it's, it's what a, what a what a fantastic question you know I think ultimately what we have is are like you know it's funny because now hearing you speak, I have to admit I you're a huge influence on me as well in terms of Thank what you. we're doing with their wisdom, and you know the more I think about your message, and and I think about what does this mean for me personally, you know one of the big things for me and I think for most parents is one of the really defining things in the way I carry out my life is how I'm raising my kids, yes, and when you're raising your kids. When you break that down to how do you do that, it's all about what are the messages that you are sharing with your kids, that you are, um, how are you influencing your kids, uh, how do you hope that they will grow up, how do you hope that they are going to behave. And that all comes down to your way and the message that you are communicating to your children. And ultimately, the word that keeps coming up in my mind is wisdom because I'm living my life and I'm gaining experiences through all these different Places I go and people I interact with and and experiences that I have, and that sum total, as you referred to, that essence, that ultimately is becoming and it's still forming, obviously, it forms throughout your entire life, your personal wisdom. And I think if if my one of my defining um, one of my defining roles as a person is as a father and I'm trying to uh, raise my kids in the best way that I possibly can, the most valuable um the most valuable piece, the most powerful component to that activity of raising my kids is how I transmit my message to them. And whether that message is here now and I'm having a conversation with them, or whether it's 10 years down the road and I'm having a conversation with them, or you know, hopefully it'll be 50 years down the road, I'll still be having those conversations with them. But at some point, I won't be here to have those conversations with them anymore. And at that point, would I still want to be able to influence my children if I was confident that that wisdom that I had um, uh, maybe the, that I had collected over the course of my life, if there was some way that I could still share that with my kids even after I'm gone, I, I don't know what could be more valuable than that. And which, I mean, that so that is one of the reasons that I am so intrigued and I am so um, interested and quite frankly just totally um, enthralled with what you're doing and the message that you're putting across because uh, like you say, I think this will change the course of humanity in terms of the way that we're able to interact. And when you get into the neurosphere and things that you're talking about, I mean this just you know, I start to let my imagination run wild and it, 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 you know, you know, when you're a kid you start asking these questions like, you know, where does the world end? Like how big is the universe? Exactly. And, and you, you can't answer that because you, you don't know. And and. When I start thinking about the messages that you have, and I start thinking about this where this wisdom is going, and you, I, I come to this point where it's like I, I, my brain doesn't know how to process that anymore. Like, where where is this all going to lead? And I get I hit this wall where it's like, great, so we're going to have this, these messages, and we'll be able to share this information in this neurosphere. But at some point, I'm just like, I, I don't know how to think about it anymore beyond that. But it's going to be beyond that. So anyway, those are some of my thoughts.
1: Well, well, Terry, I, I, so beautiful what, what you shared. And I can help, and I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, because I'm going to help guide some folks, because I've been thinking about this for decades. Um, I go back in time, and I talk about history for one reason. It's an, an analogy for how we can deal with the future. We don't need to relearn gravity. All we need to do is accept that there is gravity And we move on. We can try to decode it, but it it affects all of us. There's a gravity to these ideas. It's an arc of humanity. Humanity has been doing only one thing. It's been telling a story to try to make us stronger. And the engine that drives that is going to probably make me sound even a little bit more ridiculous, is love. (laughs) You are driving everything in your life, me, everybody listening, out of a, a, a desire to pass on love. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't quite know. We, we, we form these societies that we have right now in this moment around the paradigms of, you know, it's 9 to 5. We have these digits on a computer that we call our wealth, and we're judged by that. I mean, all these different things. And we can get into the philosophy of where that goes 10,000, 100,000 years. But when we archive information and it gets uncovered, and i use gobekli tepe as that example when we uncover that they were already starting to write in a uh symbolic language a language we can't fully understand today it's symbolic and all the early languages were symbolic uh some people call it the uh, the language of the birds uh <laughs> again it sounds crazy but when you start understanding that there were different forms of communication and we're not just even talking about um the, the, the mechanics of language. It, it is the analogies and the mythological things that we're trying to transfer as wisdom forward. And Joseph Campbell is, had a tremendous influence on me. I'll leave everybody with this thought. Joseph Campbell spent his entire life studying all mythologies and all allegorical stories and tried to understand what is it that we're trying to say to ourselves in a self-consideration of humanity. And again, a lot of people get caught in this humanities mode and they go, oh my gosh, contemplating thy belly button, uh, we're never going to get anything. No, I believe the pendulum needs to swing back to what I believe is the middle. And that is, what are we trying to do? What are we Mm. really trying to do? Mm. And when we cast the Voyager record into space, the fastest moving object that humans and the furthest moving object at this point may be debatable. It's the fastest, but it's definitely the furthest human object we've created. It was part hope and part ambition. And we don't know where this ends, but we know that it's, it can't just end like this and whatever this means. And when we know that there have been cultures that meticulously preserved A message that we may not fully understand I hope someday we do and I get angry because we did know and that knowledge was destroyed by the people in that epoch that discovered it they didn't want you and I to know it then and maybe even now I I can't explain the details of why you discover everybody listening to me but that's a fact it's a fact it didn't fit it didn't fit the narrative in that moment What I hope you and I create in technology in the future is the inability for people to edit who you were. So if you become, let's say, Terry, that you've designed this incredible cure for some unknown disease, unbeknownst to you, and a thousand years somebody goes back to you and says, this guy was on a path. Maybe I I can interview some of his experiences and a light bulb goes off that's what wisdom is about we don't know the value of wisdom until ex post facto sometimes sometimes thousands of years so yes you should feel these goosebumps because it's what makes us human the dystopian side of this the robots killing us and the movies have at it but that's not how humans got here and that's not really what humans are about. We get entertained by the car accident and, and, and the craziness of it, but that's not how you and I arrived at this point in time. We arrived because of a positive view of humanity, not a utopian view. It's so strange that I have to constantly say that this is not utopian because we've become so soured on the idea that humans can do great things. And that's part of what this is. It's part about the greatness of humans. And I think sharing wisdom and connecting that wisdom, and amplifying it, and interacting with it long after we're gone, and those sum totals of wisdom building upon building upon building, arriving at some insight far beyond synergistically that you and I could ever guess upon, is what we have been here to do at least one thing. It's all driven out of our desire to love generations in front of us, that's why we do this. We we don't, most of us, don't want to destroy the next generations. We want to hold them up higher than where we were before. And right. that's the promise of technology. That's why right. we manipulate our fingers and use tools and build things and put a house and, and protect our family and and, and and try to do something better for them. That's why people are working 18 hours a day and not getting any sleep. Uh, You know, maybe they temporarily are deluded in that it's their ego, but maybe in the grand scheme of things, is I did it for them. If they have kids, their kids. If they don't have kids, humanity or the greater whole of all of us. And again, this is sounds like it's crazy talk because we've drifted so far from the path that humans have been on since the beginning of time that I now sound off the wall in twenty (laughs) nineteen. Because that's how soured we've become on humanity. Hmm. And I'm telling everybody listening to me, that is not the arc of humans. We will overcome, we will transcend, and we will go back and find what I call the path. And that's kind of the premise of my song that I put out there, is I'm trying to transmit this message and trying to give it what worth it has in the best that I possibly can, Maybe because I'm standing on the shoulders of greater giants, I am not doing anything that unique other than what others have done in the past, and I hope to try to transmit that. And I think in having interviews like this, and we can sort of discuss it and put a patina of technology around it because it makes everybody interested, mm-hmm. it's just what all we've always been doing. That's all we're talking about. Wonderful. Doesn't Does that make sense?
0: absolutely absolutely brian i and i, and I think just to, to respect your time i think this is a place where we should we should leave it today but boy brian i mean what can i say the conversations with you are just so thought-provoking and, and just absolutely incredible I, I i mean i encourage the listeners and we'll and we'll put links to to the various uh resources that you've mentioned but, uh, the link to the book that you're writing a link to your song uh, a link to your website of course um but the listeners just just as a message to the listeners if 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 you are not following Brian and his work, you need to be following Brian and his work. It's just as simple as that. Um, you know, Brian has been described as uh, the modern-day Thomas Edison. And the more I get to know Brian, the more I believe truly that that is a very accurate description of this man. So, um, wow. Brian, thank you very much for, for joining me again. It's, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to, to chat with you.
1: Terry, thank you for giving me this time and such an honor and very kind words. Thank you very much.
0: Well, there you have it. Incredible, huh? I hope that you found that as fascinating as I did during the interview. Uh, As you can see, Brian is uh, a visionary and I personally love what he has to say, not only the part about the technology itself, but also just what this means for humanity. That discussion about wisdom at the end and, and love guiding what we're doing is incredible. Now obviously these are some big concepts and as I said at the beginning I want to know what you think about this. It's great to hear what Brian thinks. It's great to hear what I think but I want to know what you think and so I want to ask you three different questions and I'd love for you to get involved and answer these uh, through Twitter or through any other social media or, or for that matter on my website itself. Uh, any way that you can share these comments with me I would love to know what you have to say. Here are the three questions. Number one, is society ready for this? Is society ready for what Brian has described? That's number one. Number two, will we ever be ready for this? So if you answered no to question one, you don't think we're ready for it, then will society ever be ready? And number three is, will this happen by default, regardless of what Brian is saying? So for example, do you feel this is already happening? We know that there is already a ton of recording going on, both voluntarily and involuntarily. So, Will this happen by default, regardless of what Brian says? So, again, to recap, those three questions are Is society ready for this? Number two is, If not, will we ever be ready for this? And number three is, Will this happen by default? Please share your comments with me. Probably the easiest way to do that is through Twitter. My Twitter handle is Dr. Terry Fisher, D R T E R I F I S H E R. And use the hashtag VFH27 for Voice First Health 27. The final part. this, which I think is a really, really um, generous thing that Brian has offered to do, is that he has offered to come back onto the podcast at a later date and answer your questions. So when you are giving this feedback, please feel free to ask Brian a question, and I'm going to collect these questions, and at some point in the future here, we're going to have Brian back on, and I'm going to ask your questions to Brian so that we can really explore what all of this means from your perspective and get the answers that you want to know. All right. So, uh, of course, the links to things that we described are, will be on the show notes page at voicefirsthealth.com slash 27. And I look forward to hearing your feedback. Again, use the hashtag VFH27. And those three questions. Is society ready for this Will we ever be ready for it? And will it happen by default? And please uh, pose your questions to Brian as well. I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Big thanks to Brian Romley for coming on the podcast and sharing so much of his time and his thoughts and his expertise. And uh, we'll chat again soon. Take care.